and welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. And I'm Joy. On today's episode, we talked with Anne Swindell. Anne is the author of Still Waiting. She was in the Tyndale offices recently, and we got a chance to sit down and talk about her, uh, how she became a writer and a writing teacher, and what led her to write this book. We know that this story will encourage all of our listeners. It's really a story of how to have hope when God doesn't give you what you want. And I know that we all have experience with this. We do not know the ways of God. We can only trust that he is sovereign overall. So Anne encourages us to explore the depth of why God wants us to wait and chronicles her own compelling story of waiting for healing from an incurable condition. So please enjoy this episode. And if you wanna learn more about Anne, you can visit her website, anneswindell.com or you can find her book anywhere books are sold or at Tyndale.com. Well, Anne, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah. Um, we're really looking forward to hearing about you and your new book called mm-hmm. Still Wedding. It comes out April 4th. And um, Anne, Anne uh, visited us today, the Tyndale offices, and is doing quite a bit around here. Um, so, Anne, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you became a writer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was one of those kids who was always reading nose in a book, and I loved writing stories even since I was, you know, a little girl. I would ask for those blank journals just to write my own stories in. So I always loved the written word, and I actually entered college as an education major. I thought that probably the only way to make a living um, as someone who liked to write and read was as a teacher. But I got into the major and realized I don't think this is, I don't think teaching high school is what I'm called to do. I didn't really feel a lot of joy or peace around it. And so spent some time praying in college, talking to people in my life and trying to discern what the path was. And I ended up saying, I don't know what I'm gonna do, (laughs) but I really feel called to write. So I double majored in writing and in uh, Christian education. I have a heart for ministry as well. And so after college, I decided to do what a lot of liberal arts majors do, and I went to grad school uh-huh. um, to get more <laughs> education in writing. And that my first graduate degree was in writing. And um, right after I finished my grad degree, I actually was able to adjunct at my alma mater at Wheaton College and fell in love with teaching too. So I did end up in education, just kind of a backdoor way, but I kept writing and uh, was starting to write for different publications, online magazines, things like that, and then got into my dream program, which was the MFA at Seattle Pacific University in creative nonfiction. So it was kind of this hybrid of continuing to write on the side while I had a job as an educator, and then um, pursuing graduate school for many years, um, but really enjoying it. and had several book ideas throughout the years, but this was the one that I consistently felt uh, just I don't, a nudge from the Lord to keep writing and keep working on it, even though I had no idea if it would ever see the light of day uh, with a publisher. So that's kind of where I landed where I am now. Um, so it wasn't any linear process, but just continuing to do what I love and pursue Jesus and see what the next step would be. Mm-hmm. At what point, as you're, you're writing these articles and things for different publications Mm -hmm. did this specific story for this book come about was it during something else you were writing or was it just came to you one day how did how did that come about well it it came about in part because the way that I figure out life is usually to write about it 
Some people are great verbal processors, and my husband would probably agree that I do like to verbally process things a lot. <laughs> um, and some people need to go for a jog and kind of clear their mind. For me, it's always been that I, I most clearly see what God is doing in my life when I actually sit down to write. And so when I was in uh, graduate school getting my MFA, one of the times we had to continually turn in large amounts of work every three weeks. And so you it's not that you run out of things, but I realized I was just going to have to go deeper into what was actually going on in my life is if I was going to create anything that really had some depth and some value. And um, Still Waiting is a book that is in large part about my journey with trichotillomania, which is something that I had never shared um, with people in the written format. I had shared the fact that I had this condition with people in my life that were closest to me, but I'd never written about it. I think in part because it has been such a tender part of my journey that I wasn't sure I wanted to open it up on the page. But in graduate school, I did kind of start to have this stirring that, man, I, I do want to, I want to see how God is at work in this area of my life that doesn't seem to be changing. Um, trichotillomania, this condition where you pull out your own hair is is usually incurable. There's no clear um, quick fix for getting healed. And so I wanted to figure out like, Jesus, where are you in this? Because I don't see any real clear way that you're, you're making this better in my life. And so I wrote an essay about it. Um, and my professor was really intrigued and really encouraged me to keep writing about it. And so it ended up being part of my graduate thesis. And then after I graduated, I realized, I think I think I could actually write a book-length work on this. I think there's more here that I could dive into. And so then I spent the next three years uh, after my thesis was completed working on this book. Wow. And the, the book itself, Anne, mm -hmm. it sounds like you parallel it with scripture, and particularly yes. with the woman, the issue of blood. Mm -hmm. How did you compare yourself to her? Yeah, so this book is kind of interesting because it has both the fictional component and the nonfiction component. So it is my story, but it also, every chapter starts with this fictional section about the life of the bleeding woman. And part of the reason that I have always loved her story in scripture is because she um, had been bleeding for 12 years. Mm -hmm. And by the time I started writing about my journey with trichotillomania, I had had it for over 15 years. Mm. And so I was drawn to the fact that, you know, the scriptures are, are pretty tight with what they give us as far as information about her life and her stories in three of the four gospels. And the authors always just kind of, they don't gloss over the fact, but they quickly move on. Okay, she'd been bleeding for 12 years. She had no money left. Then she met Jesus. And it's this really beautiful moment when she meets Jesus. But as someone who's had a chronic health condition for many years, I always thought 12 years, like that's, that's a large part of a life to live with a condition that left her um, Levitically unclean according to the law and that would have made her a social outcast. And so I was always really fascinated by those 12 years before she met Jesus, but there's not really much about her life in the scriptures. We don't know what it was like. And so in graduate school, actually, I, that's when I started this idea of what if I did a lot of research about her life and what it might have been like before she met Jesus? And so as I started reading about her in commentaries and theological texts, I discovered, you know, there's a lot we know about 
the first century, uh, Jewish life for a woman, and there's a lot we know about what would have been the ramifications for her as someone who was bleeding according to the law. And so I decided to say, hey, let, what, if, what if I write her story? Obviously it's a conjecture, but I think it might help me better understand my own story and what it means to wait for God to break through in your life. So that's kind of how it came about. Mm-hmm. And it probably gave you some leeway to be creative, mm-hmm. a little bit more than like the actual facts of your history, and then also a great way to express some of the deep emotions and the things you're probably still wondering about and Definitely. figuring out. This is not a journey that ends with you know a beautiful book. Like this is just <laughs> opening you know opening the pages to like this is this is my life and I want right. to use it as a ministry and. How was it for you to write something this revealing? Mm. <laughs> that must have been quite a difficult thing at times. It was. It was. I mean, I think any time, well, maybe I'm odd, but I don't think most writers sit down and say, today I'd like to write about the weakest, most vulnerable part of my life and share it with <laughs> anyone who wants to read it. You know, <laughs> at least with my personality, that's not that's not how I usually sit down to write. I. I want to be a woman who is honest and transparent with my church community, with my family, with my closest friends. But I'm not the type who is, you know, looking for shock value. Um, I think the only reason that I I ended up writing this book that I can honestly say is I felt felt like it was obedience to the Lord. I felt like he was inviting me to write my story, to see how I might um, encounter him in new ways. One thing that I love about being a writer is that when we write our own stories afresh, we usually see where God was at work when we look back in ways that we couldn't see when we were living through pain or trials or questioning. Um, it's hard to get that bird's eye view when you're you know, in the struggle. And so I, I can honestly say, I mean, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to write this book and to work with Tyndale, but I can say with my whole heart, even if this book never had gotten published, the way that Jesus met me as I wrote my story and wrote out these years of questions and um, and pain really was such a gift to my heart and it was it really transformed how I've seen my own life in light of uh, the love of Christ and his presence with me in the hard times so I, I wrote this first out of obedience to him and really out of I think a journey he wanted to take me on of seeing his goodness in the middle of things that felt only hard. And then what he's done on the flip side is that apparently this is also a story that other people need to read. And so my my hope is that, you know, it's it's not just vulnerability for vulnerability's sake. It's vulnerability to, to open a door for someone else to say, me too. Um, maybe they don't have this kind of odd condition called trichotillomania, but maybe they have something else in their life that they have been waiting and and praying and asking God to change for years or decades. Mm -hmm. And how do we continue to trust Jesus and walk in intimate relationship with him if he doesn't answer those prayers? That's what this book is about. And so that's really my hope, is that my vulnerability is going to help others see the goodness of Jesus in their own struggles, um, even if they're very different from mine. I have a question that's more of a writer yeah. question for you. So the structure of the book, mm-hmm. um, each chapter starts with the sort of your fictionalized uh, backstory or telling of the this woman from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And you go into your own story. Where did you, how did you even think of, to do that? And what's, 
Was that fun for you? Like, that sounds like it would be fun to do. It was, yeah, it was really fun. sort of how did you, did you write all the fictional parts first and go back and fill in or how did, how did that writing process <laughs> you know I, well here's here's the thing i'll let you in on a little secret okay. adam is right. i'm i'm not a fiction writer in oh. general i and i mean i guess i am now yeah. and i mm-hmm. found found out that i loved it but um none of my training has been in fiction i've fiction has always been a little scary for me because my problem was i would always write I would try to write a fiction story and I'd end up writing about real people in my life but like changing the names <laughs> which is not fiction right no. it's it's creative nonfiction, which yeah. is what I love and what I uh, have been doing for the last decade mm. but I think um, part of the reason that I decided to do it that way was as I got into her story and researched what her life could have been like I think it would have come off really dry had I tried to just give the reader a lot of facts. Like, here's what a first-century Jewish woman's life with a bleeding condition might have looked like in first-century AD. Um, And also, there's a freedom with fiction, and I say this in the author's note in the beginning, like, a lot of this is just a guess. I don't know her name. I had to give her a name. I don't know. We actually don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. Did she start bleeding when she was 10? Did she start bleeding when she was 75? We have no idea. I had to pick. You know, I had to make a choice as a in this fiction part of the book. And so um, I realized that a lot of this, you know, we'll never know until we meet the Lord. But I think the heart of her story is um, it's that same it's the same questions. She was a human. You know, she walked the earth. She had the same questions about God and his goodness. And did he see her in the same ways that we do? And so when I set out to write the book, I think I quickly realized it's going to be way too boring if I just try to create some sort of theological background for her. Uh, You need more of an emotional component to really feel the depth of this woman's story and why why her willingness to trust again and to reach out in faith again after 12 years of doctors who bungled her case and she was getting worse, there was a tenderness in her and a willingness to, um, to ask God again. That is really shocking when you think about it. Um, and I wanted to capture that. And so as I started structuring the book, I thought, well, I could do it all at the front and basically write her story and write my story, but that kind of kills the dramatic tension. (laughs) So this, it was just an idea, and I honestly had no idea if it was going to work to, like, do fiction, nonfiction, fiction, nonfiction. It sounds like it could be a little spastic, but it ended up, I think, working really well. I hope working really well. I guess the reader is the only one that can decide that, but um, it also has made me think differently about how I approach other stories in the Bible to really say, every woman and child and man that Jesus came across and healed and interacted with, even all the stories that we'll never know, um, they were real people with stories. And when he walked into their lives, they were radically transformed. Um, And he's still doing that today. You know, he's not in the flesh, but he's still doing that today. And I think it's just, it's made the Bible um, really vibrant for me again. And that's been exciting too. Mm -hmm. Sorry to make always go the non-serious route but my first thought was (laughs) when you said earlier when you said Mm. it's just like one line about her you know create this whole backstory yeah that's basically what they did with the latest star wars movie rogue one yeah i mean pretty pretty much from the first movie and then they created this whole movie so you're basically the same as pretty much um, this is the (laughs) next star wars book (laughs) i mean this is yeah you know i would say it's very similar (laughs) 
Feel free um, to use that in any press. In marketing. Yeah, okay. Like, the, the, ne- next the next thing. Star Wars, yes. according to Adam. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question to maybe pull us a little bit deeper. Yeah. Um, for, for men and women who have grown up in the church mm-hmm. who so desire to please the Lord mm-hmm. and, and recognize their sin or their shortcomings, but really want to use those to honor him, but then get caught in a cycle of shame, mm-hmm. and shame is so debilitating, yeah. and sin and shame wants to hide, it wants to stay dark, it doesn't want to share its story. Right. What would you say to encourage those people? Because this is not an easy thing, yeah. but it's something where you, when you can express it, it loses a lot of its power. Yeah, totally. I think you're right. I think uh, shame is a very willing parasite in the places of our lives that are full of sin and struggle. And, you know, sometimes we choose sin on our own. We choose to make choices that are um, directly opposed to God. And then sometimes we have things in our life, medical conditions or um, genetic situations or uh, familial relationships. They're just hard. And it's not a sin necessarily, but it's just brokenness. And I think whether it's sin or brokenness, shame is, it's like, you know, I think of that line uh, from the Bible that, you know, Satan's crouching at the door. Shame feels to me like that, and shame comes from the enemy, and it's always ready to cling to those places in our lives that feel weakest, um, in part because there is a part of us as humans, the way God has created us. We know that we're not supposed to be broken. We know, you know, that we're meant to be perfect creatures, and so there is that real shame of being a broken human before a holy God, and that's a real feeling. Um But what I love, and I write about this in the book, there's a whole chapter on shame. What I love about Jesus is that when he came, there's there's a verse that says, you know, he he went to the cross willingly and he scorned the shame of the cross. And, you know, Jesus's day and age, um, death on a cross was a death designed as much to shame as it was to torture. You know, he was stripped, he was beaten, he was bloodied, he was hung up to die and he was being shamed in front of his captors and in front of those who wanted to see him dead. And yet the scriptures tell us that he scorned the shame. You know, to scorn means he didn't he didn't give it the rightful place that people wanted it to have. He refused the shame, essentially. And I think he refused the shame because he knew the whole reason he was going to the cross was to defeat shame, among many other things. Um, but I love that about Jesus, that he he wouldn't even take on what was supposed to be the most shameful moment of his life. He didn't see it as shameful. He didn't see it as um, humiliating. He knew that it was his place of greatest victory. And I think as men and women made in his image, as daughters of uh, the king, as sons of the king, we can learn to see those places in our lives that that the world and the enemy says should be our place of greatest shame and say, no, this is going to be a place for God's victory in my life. And we're never guaranteed that that victory is going to be here on earth. You know, we're never guaranteed that we're going to be free um, from our family dysfunction here on earth. We're never, um, I'm never guaranteed that I'm going to be free from trichotillomania here on earth. But there is a day coming when we will be free and when we're not going to have any shame. And so we can learn by living in community, by reading the word, by being in relationship with Christ, by being open, not with the whole world. You don't have to write a book <laughs> like I did, um, but with people in our small groups and people in our family and church community about those places that Satan wants to keep in the dark 
to say what the enemy intends to shame me is going to be a place of victory in my life because Jesus has already won that victory on the cross. Yes. So it's not easy, but it's possible, mm. and it's possible mm-hmm. through Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful way of putting it, Anne, <laughs> to see that. And I love the word scorn. Mm-hmm. You didn't. Uh, it's such a powerful word to just say, I despise yeah. this shame. Yep. Like this is, I am conquering it. And then in, the, in our weakness, you know, Paul is the epitome of both humans' weakness, yep. right? And <laughs> how he's like, I am, this is what gives Christ the power and me the victory yeah. through him. And again, the key is realizing that victory does not mean a change in circumstance yeah. or in situation. It's the victory that Christ has already done and is yet to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what gives us hope as believers. And totally. what can be so attractive to people who are hurting in this world who think they know Jesus but don't, or who don't know him at all, mm-hmm. and say, I want to be healed, and more so than a condition, maybe it's a soul healing. Mm-hmm. And so for you, even if you're not healed of trichotillomania, your heart is beginning to be healed and, and find new strength in the Lord. Definitely. And that's that's worth it. Definitely. Well, and I, w- I will say even, you know, having, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but once I signed the contract to write this book and realizing, oh, my goodness, like, this story that maybe 20 people in my whole life have ever known about this weakness is now suddenly going to be available for the world. Oh, yeah. um, but I tell you what, there has actually been the the almost terror, the terrified feeling that comes has been replaced by so much freedom. And I think that is the gift, the unexpected gift of community, of Christian community, is that um, we think that our weakest places are going to disqualify us or that they're going to uh, make us seem weird or strange the truth is we're all weird and strange (laughs) and there is um and with other people who really love the lord it's so freeing to be able to say you know what like i don't measure up but that's why i'm a christian i can't i can't make things happen on my own i'm not good enough i'm i can't save myself that's the good news of the gospel is you don't have to. Yes. And that's what I've really found through through writing this book and seeing my story again through the, the lens of Jesus over these years in a new way is, and then sharing my story with lots of people, um, is that, yeah, my soul is whole in Christ even if my body and my mind are still really broken. And that's a picture of the coming kingdom is that our souls are fully redeemed, fully restored in Christ, and one day everything else will be made new as well. And um, seeing that played out in in community is, I think, one of the greatest gifts the Lord has given us to get a taste of what heaven is going to be like. Yes. Well, we're going to put you on the spot here. Um, (laughs) Wondering if you have any favorite passages or um, things from the book that you'd be willing to read? I know you just read half the book. Yeah, I know. I was just (laughs) reading the audio book, which was really exciting. Um, And my my voice, praise God, is holding up. Yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, I could read this part, kind of just what we were talking about with with risking in community and Mm -hmm. telling our stories Mm -hmm. with other people. My waiting hasn't felt very risky. I associate risk with great feats. I see it as something impressive, full of courage and heroism, such as the bleeding woman displayed. But the Lord has started showing me that I have taken risks in my journey with trichotillomania, not solely because I had to, but because I chose to. God hasn't strong-armed me into risking in this tender area of my life. He has invited me to say yes to risking with him. 
As I've waited for his healing touch in my life, my risks may not have been visible to those around me, but the Lord knows how much those risks have required of me over and over and over. There is the risk of asking him for healing again and again, asking when my heart is weary and vulnerable from continuing to wait. And there's the risk of trying again, trying to keep my hands down and my mind focused, trying not to pull my eyelashes even when I feel defeated and worn out. There's also the risk of hoping again, hoping that I might walk in freedom from this condition someday, even though that hope has been unfulfilled for two decades and often feels like a fool's hope. No one else sees these risks. They are internal risks that I take with God, choosing to keep my spirit open and vulnerable with him, even when he doesn't answer my prayers in the way I wish he would and know he can. This is the real hard work of faith for most of us, not jumping off cliffs or swimming in shark-infested waters, but being willing to lay our hearts and souls bare before God without protection or pretense. And it's a risky business. It's risky to continue to open our hearts to the Lord when our dreams and desires don't line up with reality. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Don't let anyone make you feel like coming to the Lord should always feel warm and fuzzy and easy and clear-cut. It won't. It doesn't. We are right to tremble. He is God, the Lord of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who measures the nations as a drop in a bucket. And he isn't bound by our ways, our timelines, or our demands. He's bound by truth and love and justice and mercy, by all the things he is and contains within himself. Why do you think the bleeding woman came up behind Jesus? I have no doubt that she was afraid of making him unclean and that she was afraid of risking what shard of reputation she had left by humiliating herself in public. But I imagine that she also had a sense that this Jesus was very powerful. Whether or not she realized he was God, she knew she was approaching someone great and mighty, someone who healed lepers and raised the dead. This was someone who wielded great authority, and so she came trembling. She was right to do so. But we can make the choice to keep risking. In fact, when it comes down to it, risk is really the only choice we have. Risk is woven into the fabric of our finite lives, one theologian writes, because none of us can see into the future. Unlike God, who is all-knowing and all-seeing, we see and know very little of what ahead. what's ahead. We're always banking our hopes on an unforeseen outcome. But the opposite of not risking with God is even worse. Because if we remain paralyzed and if we refuse to risk staying tender and needy before God, then we're risking something else altogether, something more precious even than the yes we desire from him. If we refuse to risk our hearts with God, then we're missing out on the opportunity for closeness and intimacy with him and with others. Thanks. Yeah. Still waiting. <laughs> yeah. Available in mm. April. Yeah. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more about you, what's the best way to, to do that? Yeah, they can go to stillwaitingbook.com and um, there's a whole page there just with information about the book and a little bit about me and where they can buy the book. I've even created a, a fun a What's Your Waiting Style quiz mm -hmm. down at the bottom of the page. So if you want to learn what your waiting style is, no matter what it is, you can go there. Um, you can also find me online everywhere, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm just at Ann Swindell, which is Ann with no E. So um, I would love to connect. I think um, there's a lot of power when we can share our stories of waiting and trusting God with each other. And it gives us hope.
to say tomorrow's a new day. God is still good, and he's worth it. Yes. It's, he's worth it no matter what changes or doesn't change. Mm-hmm. He's worth all of my love and my affection. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. It's really been an encouragement for me personally. And then to think of other people in my life who, yeah. who could really use this book and to realize that all of our stories are worth telling. Mm-hmm. And each one of us has glimpses of God in them. And that's that's what we're to do, we're to share our testimonies yeah. and encourage people. So good. Thanks for having yeah. me. It's yes. been a blessing to be here. Thank you. Uh-huh.